Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science. I have uh, several members of my team in the studio today. Good morning, Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Dr. Linden, great to see you. Great to see you too. Two in the studio and online with us is Stacey. Good morning, Stacey. Good morning, Dr. Shane. With you sunning it somewhere else. I am. I'm uh, interstate in the Gold Coast, although it has been raining for the last three or four days, and today's the only sunny day, so I've got to uh, get out there and um, uh, hang out with the kids, go for a swim. <laughs> I heard there was a rain bomb up there. I'm not sure that's a real technical term, but that's the way the media is reporting it. <laughs> not a technical uh, term. Not a technical term, Linda? No. A rain bomb. No. What is this? That's a made-up term that sounds very dramatic, but it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have any meteorological definition. I'll put my... Meteorological pedant foot down there. Not, <laughs> like not that. actually. No <laughs> need to worry about the rain bomb. Just some heavy rain. Good. Back in the days when we could just say heavy rain and people would accept that. I think it's. Uh... Anyway, uh, we're going to jump straight into some news, folks, and then we've got a couple of really cool guests coming on a little bit later, and then Ray's going to teach us something at the end of the show. So, Stacey, we'll start with you. What's happening? Oh, okay. Well, I thought I'd uh, talk about an, a new infectious disease outbreak that's on Australian shores. Uh, it's made a few headlines of late. Don't worry. It's not COVID. It's not monkeypox. It's not Japanese encephalitis. Um, this one's not directly affecting us as humans, but it's affecting our bees. Um, now, I think, Dr. Shane, we've got a, sh- a guest coming up on the show to talk about uh, the behaviour of Australian mm. native bees. Yep. Well, this outbreak break um, is has the potential to affect our local population of European honeybees. Not good. Not good. Not yep. good. So what's the problem? Uh, well, last week, Australian authorities detected a parasite among beehives in New South Wales, and this parasite is called the Varroa mite, and its scientific name is Varroa destructor, mm. which it gives you a bit of an indication of the you know, type of, of, of beast this is. Now my, got... my recollection is that uh, this had, I think, hit New Zealand, but it hadn't yet hit Australia. We were like the last domino to fall around the world. Is that right? Yeah, we are. So um, it hit New Zealand 20 years ago yep. and they weren't able to contain it. And now it's um, widespread or endemic in certain areas of, in, in New Zealand. Um, and they've just had to manage it and adapt those in, industries that are affected. Um, but yeah, we're, we're sort of the last domino to fall. So, um, you know, Australian biosecurity measures have successfully kept this species out of Australian shores um, because what normally happens is that there's the, the mite can be imported on infested bees or bee products that hitch a ride from mm. other so containers and ships arriving. Um, and then once it's in Australia... They can spread from bee to bee due to close contact. We know all about that. Um, or through the transportation of infected hives as they move around to pollinate crops. Mm. Um, so the mites like a real threat to Australian honeybee population and particularly the horticultural industries that rely on pollination. So that's crops like almonds, apples, pears, cherries, avocados, like all the good stuff. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. All the good stuff, yep. All the good stuff. Um, and so what happens is when a bee is infected or all their larvae or pupae as well, they, it cripples their ability to fly, gather food, pollinate or emerge from the cell to be born. Um, and so if varroa mite was to be established here in Australia, they're estimating that um, that the European honeybee and the pop- pollination services they provide could be reduced by 90 to 100% with an economic impact of about $70 million a year. Um so, you know, on the back of COVID, we're all pretty familiar with public health measures to limit transmission. And so for animal public health, it's actually not that dissimilar. So first of all, um, uh, authorities will rely on good surveillance to detect um, incursion. And then, um, you know, in this case, it was detected in sentinel beehives. So these are hives specifically set up uh, near ports of entry in Australia so that they can quickly detect and then um, implement control measures. So um, in New South Wales, uh, it was detected in those sentinel hives in port um, 
in the port of Newcastle in New South Wales. And as soon as that was detected, a biosecurity emergency order was enacted. And so this mandated a statewide standstill of all beehives, apiary equipment and untreated bee products in New South Wales. Um, it was being enforced by police. So it's mm. a bit of a deja vu, but for the bees. Um, and then additionally, in the last couple of days, Queensland, Victoria and South Australia have also implemented a border control banning the entry of bees from all New South Wales areas of New South Wales. And then they've had to just, you know, um, issue the destruction of around 600 hives. So that's about 6 million bees. Um, and, I mean, that's a necessary precaution because the concern is that if it's established, you know, you can't really... Stop it's it. unlikely yeah. that yeah. they'll be able to control it. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure what the containment prospects are for here in Australia, mm. but it would be good to, to hear more from animal public health experts about this. But, you know, um, I think in Melbourne in 2018, um, Australian biosecurity measures were successful to contain that spread um, in Melbourne. But, yeah, now I guess it's just a, a yeah. bit of a full steam ahead in New South Wales to try to contain it. Well, fingers crossed we've held out, held the line for a very long time now and um, hopefully we'll be able to do this as well. It's a very bee-themed uh, morning, um, listeners. It is. <laughs> we've got bee news. Uh, we have a guest talking about bees and uh, Cam on Eat It after our show also is going to be talking about honey. Um, the is production really? of honey as well. Oh. So um, it's all it's all happening, actually. Cam's probably seen this door going, how the devil does Dr. Shane know that? And it's because I've got spies everywhere. Yeah. All right. I'm, oh, good. I'm glad we're not going with the simple bees should take personal responsibility um, way of dealing with this. That obviously, yeah, it's not working so well for us humans. Thank you, Stacey. What do you got, Ray? Well, I was just thinking that it was similar public health measures, but we were quarantined. They burned down the hives. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah that's true. Yeah, thankfully it didn't go that way for us. So did you ever notice that you've always, we've always known that if we're stressed and we get a good night's sleep, somehow things feel better in the morning? Yeah, but um, you don't usually get a good night's sleep when you're stressed. Well, yeah, that's an interesting problem. And so as it turns out, at least in mice, uh, researchers from Imperial College London actually found a part of the midbrain that has a mechanism to actually drive stress-induced sleep to help reduce anxiety. So the... And, and so this is a mouse model, so eventually, hopefully, some, they'll find some insights in people as well. There's actually a, a, set of, a, a cluster of neurons that actually will respond to stress and cause mice to want to go to sleep. Mm. Now, it's, it's after the mice have, have experienced some type of anxiety. And initially, I thought, wait, how do mice feel anxiety? I mean, other than a cat, I thought, you know, do they really? But actually, it's uh, from social anxiety. So the example the, the researchers gave was social defeat when an intruder comes in. And if the intruder's defeated, they often, socially, they often go to sleep not soon after for a couple hours. And that's actually that part of their brain driving this uh, both REM and non-REM sleep pattern uh, based on, 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 on being anxious. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so then it helps uh, regulate hormone levels and, and prevent long-term stress problems. And, and, and it was quite surprising. This was in... Um, in, I believe, uh, I forgot if it was nature and science, sorry, but that the, they actually found this part of the brain. Now, they are still a little fuzzy on exactly how sleep is induced from the social defeat, but what they saw was more of a strong correlation between social defeat and this part of the brain driving that sleep effect. Yeah. Uh, so they don't know if it's hormonal. I mean, it, it, I don't, you know, they haven't been able to ask the mice, do you feel sleepy after being defeated? But the, I mean, that's what it looks like. And, <laughs> and, and so there's, there's still more questions there, but it's how these, they call them GABA neurons uh, in this, oh, I, the area was a funny name. We'll just go with the abbreviation VTA because I'm pretty sure I couldn't pronounce the rest of it. Um, but the idea of this psychological stress model inducing restorative sleep the whole idea is they're hoping that maybe they could learn to target these neurons to provide new routes for treating anxiety disorders, mm -hmm. at least in mice to start. But yeah, yeah, they're just in the hole. That's it. I'm giving up on the day. I'm nodding off. Yeah. Face. Uh, fight, flight, or fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we're well, all about it. Well, I think I got it wrong because the cat is fight or flight, but this is social anxiety. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay too. Though it's just like I'm done. I'm out. I'm checking out. Yeah. I'm having a sleep. Having a nap. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Yeah. Lyndon. So Beyond I, the fact that there's no such thing as a rain bomb, what else do you want to say? Yes, so there's no, there is heavy rain, and it sounds like it's hitting uh, eastern New South Wales, yep. southeastern Queensland again. Uh, again. Yep. Thinking of everybody up there, I hope you get a swim in, Stacey. Um, I just wanted <laughs> not, to... not in that way, <laughs> like a, like in a pool. In a pool, not in the yeah. street. No, yeah. I can see not sunshine on your Zoom background, so I'm hoping that you get a swim in before the rain starts to yeah. fall. 
you don't have to move out of your accommodation because it's flooding. Mm. I wanted to talk about a different type of natural disaster today and just wanted to give a little bit of an update about the uh, Hunga Tonga eruption. So the Hunga Tonga, Hunga Haiopai eruption, we've spoken about it a few times on the show. Happened, what, mid-January this year. We had somebody from the University of Newcastle, the Mm -hmm. wonderful Hannah Power, come in and talk about the tsunami aspect of it. But now we're about six months in and the data are starting to be pulled together, peer-reviewed, and papers are starting to come out exploring this quite unique and intense yeah. volcanic huge. eruption. Yeah, that incredible mm. satellite image of the, oh, the huge... The, yeah, and um, the shockwave. The shock, that, yeah, that's... Yeah, it went around, the, well, went around the world, I think, like six times or something in the end or something. Well, like this is what's happening in this last round of papers that have come out in the last few weeks looking at... These, these waves. And so there were a few papers that I've seen come out in the last couple of weeks. And there was one, the one I want to talk about was published in Nature just a couple of days ago. And it's an international collaboration. So researchers from the US, the UK, and there's one from Australia as well. And they have pulled together data from satellites that have managed by organizations all around the world to have a look at these atmospheric waves. So you remember the the shock wave that was felt or could be mm. measured even by backyard weather stations yep. Yep. Uh, as it occurred. And some papers have said it went around five times. This particular paper said they were able to monitor it at least three times <laughs> in the lower part of the atmosphere. And they said, I think it was about um, 18 hours from when the eruption occurred right. to when it made it to halfway around the Earth. So around to Algeria, that's the other part of the Earth. Like that's the antipodal spot for the particular volcano. But these guys also wanted to look at the waves that were captured by satellites higher up in the atmosphere because this volcano is quite unique. It's the first time that we've managed to capture such long, strong and extensive wave patterns higher up mm. in the atmosphere. So yeah. up 50, 55, 70, 80 kilometres in the atmosphere. There's not a lot of atmosphere mm. up there. So there's mm. very few particles, but they were being disturbed and it was traced back to this volcano. And so these guys, they, they looked at all of the data and they said, yep, we can see it. The waves in the lower part of the atmosphere were travelling pretty close to the speed of sound, over a 1,000 kilometres an hour. And the ones higher up in the atmosphere pretty much behaved as maths and physics suggested they would behave, slower but still pretty quick, Mm -hmm. and much wider than other um, disturbances that we see up there, thanks to, I don't know, things happening in the stratosphere above Antarctica or big thunderstorms or something. And so this paper was asking, okay, well, why? Like, what is it about this particular volcano that has led to such unusual and prolonged wave patterns. Yes, we've got better observations now than we ever have before. Krakatoa in 1883, there were also wave patterns Mm. that were captured there that circumnavigated the globe at least three times, I think. No satellites, though. No satellites, no. And even Mount Pinatubo in 1991, which is a very well-studied volcano, the satellites weren't as high-res as they were now. But this paper hypothesises that the reason um, Hunga Tonga was so explosive and could penetrate so high up into the atmosphere was because it was under a shallow amount of seawater. So if it had been above the surface of the ocean or deep under the ground, it wouldn't have Hmm. been able to go up so high, right? The the energy wouldn't have made it up so high. But because it was 10 to 250 metres below the surface of the sea, there was a shallow amount of water there. It couldn't get out of the way, but it could be flash boiled, Right. right? Yep. Which, of course, made it expand dramatically, turn into steam, but also shot that steam 50 kilometres up into the atmosphere Mm. where it condensed again. And when it condensed, it released a heap of energy, right? A heap of latent heat as as the water changed phase. And that led to these disturbances and these wave patterns, which hasn't really been seen before. And Mm. that's quite an exciting... Quite an exciting finding. Because people forget just how cold it is at 50 kilometres. Oh, yeah. Right? It's, I mean, what is that? It's, it's minus 80 or something. Like, yeah. but, it, but it is a huge temperature difference from beyond boiling to, you know, to really cold. Exactly. You know, well below freezing. Yeah, and yeah. to me, the image of a, some tropical seawater being <laughs> shot up <laughs> into that temperature so quickly is really dramatic. Yeah, it's quite amazing. I think yeah. there's, um, there's a lot of stuff there around, around that that just... Yeah, I was thinking back just at the way in which that all worked. And it reminded me of the way we use 
earthquakes to model the Earth's crust and interior. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so you know, people do that. They, they look at earthquake waves and see how they transit through various parts of the planet. And that gives them an idea of, you know, it's like a, a sort of version of ultrasound, you know, like where you can actually monitor, you know, how those waves get distorted and it tells you about what the interior looks like. In a similar way, all, all of this has sort of shown us a lot about the atmosphere and how energy distributes yes. through the atmosphere. In some cases, you could see the little waves like waves in a pond, but yeah. they're in the satellite images, really large wave wave sort of ripples yep. in the atmosphere. It was just wild. It was stuff. beautiful, yeah, much yeah. much clearer than we've ever seen. And it's a good point you make because the other thing this paper suggests is that we now have this beautiful experiment, the best sort of data that we've ever had of this kind of point mm. source of energy. How do our computer models of the weather and right. the climate? How can they represent that? Do they do yep. a good job of seeing whether this kind of energy can go up 80 to 90 kilometres yeah. and how the waves are behaving and how they're dispersed or displaced by our geographical features on the Earth? Yeah. Um, so this could be useful for informing future yeah. climate models too. Super cool stuff. Thank you, Lyndon. On the line with us now is Dr. Olivia Davies, who is the Casual Academic in Biological Sciences, the STEM Outreach Ambassador in the Lab of Evolutionary Genetics and Sociality at the College of Science and Engineering at Flinders University. Good morning, Olivia. Good morning. Did I miss anything? No, that's it. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, you're working on bees, which it's interesting. We were just, we were just talking about bees and, and this little um, problem mite that's just been detected in Australia, which is pretty sad. I mean, you must be all over this in terms of the news that's happening there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm definitely aware. Bad? Um, yeah, I, it is bad. Um, I can, it's a big concern for the honeybee industry, obviously. Yeah. Um, how it will affect native bees, we're not sure yet. Yeah. Well, and of course, that's not what we got you here to talk about. Your work is with regards to the social evolution of bees and how that, that happens. And I, I suppose a lot of us are aware of, you know, every second person listening has probably seen the bee movie. And if they're like me, 90% of their <laughs> knowledge comes from that. But, you know, we are aware that bees are a very social um, insect that have some really unusual and amazing features of communication and so forth. But in terms of the way that social evolution has evolved and what that teaches us about ourselves, it's not something we normally connect. So talk us through what you've been observing with these particular bees you've been studying and what we've learned. Yeah. So, you're right that a lot of people sort of assume because we know honeybees so well that that they represent what is normal for for social mm. for sociality in general in insects or in bees and that's just not the case bees are much more varied in their social performing and they the majority of bees actually are either are solitary so they nest in and look after their brood themselves, or they live in really small communities. So there's only one or two, so two or three or four individuals that are looking um, after a brood, after their brood together. So what's unusual about this species is uh, in in the in its subfamily. So there's a, you know a big diversity of these bees closely related to each other. Almost every single one of them is solitary, except. For this species hmm. um, and this species lives in really small groups so um, colonies are usually uh, either social uh, sorry are either solitary or live with two to maybe three females and that's as far as we know um, that that is a new new occurrence of that social system in this group. So unlike other groups where they have very social relatives, this one has only solitary relatives. So it's the first time that this group has evolved a social lifestyle, which right. is quite unusual. So so this so I mean in terms of the the way this bee has sort of evolved and stuff, I mean this bee's obviously been around for a very long time. Um I, I'm not sure, is that in the millions of years? I um, yeah, 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 that's what we think. Yeah, and so up until now, up until recently, they've been to lone, lone little guys. You know, they're out there doing their own thing, and whether it's a queen or whatever, you know, the, the males, females, all of them are just 
doing their own thing. Like they're, they're individual bees, sometimes obviously interact with other bees for obvious reasons, yep. but, they don't, but they don't live in colonies. What, what do you think has caused them to make this change? This seems like a, a huge change after millions of years of evolution that's kept them going as solitary little, little bees. That's always the the number one question, isn't it? Why why did they do this? We think it's parasite pressure. Mm. Um, so these bees are attacked by three dominant parasites. So these are other insects. They are attacked by a fly a, and two types of wasps at different stages in the brood development. So what we think is, has happened is that that parasite pressure has been so great that there's a big value to having a guard present in the nest during um, offspring production. Mm. And and my understanding is even if, like, you have the, the female bee in there, like normally we have this image of the female being being the queen, but you yeah. can have two, two of these females in and, and one is happy to reproduce, but for some reason the other female is just like, I'll just take care of stuff. I'm not going to reproduce at all. I'll just take care of the, the baby bees. Yeah. Yeah. So that's always um, a big question because it, it goes against what we would know about, you know, putting what we would know about biology and you want to put your genes out mm. there first. So taking a step back and not being the reproducer is quite counterintuitive. Um, so for a lot of these species, for a lot of these social colonies that we found the helper bee is either the the daughter so an older daughter or the sister of the the dominant reproducing individual so she gets some genetic advantage by helping her mother or her sister reproduce but strangely we also sometimes come across individuals that seem to not be related to the dominant female and that's sort of where we're not really sure why she would be sacrificing her reproductive output to be helping sort of a stranger. Yeah, it, and I have to ask, like, what would Darwin think of this? Like, this seems to be not so much in line with the way in which that would go. No, and um, he he would, I think, think this was quite unusual. Um, I mean... Evolution has grown a lot since then, and there's still a lot to go to understanding why individuals would be sacrificing them, mm. their reproductive potential to be helping others. Yeah. Now, in terms of um, our our existence as, as human beings and so forth, I mean, how do we learn from this structure that we see within the bees about how we've developed our social interactions and so forth? What, what does that look like for us? <laughs> are the bees just better well, at it than we are? <laughs> <laughs> they do seem a little bit more organized with yeah. it. If you watch them, they they do bicker a lot, um, just like any social creature, I'm sure. But I think really for me what, what there is to learn is that cooperation is key and that social – Social life has evolved lots and lots of times. It obviously is very beneficial to the species because why would you have it if mm. you if it didn't benefit you in some way? And the, sociality explains or accounts for so many. Um, it, it just sociality makes it so that so many processes can function really well. So. A lot of social animals often have very large um, and very dominant populations in the environment, for example, like humans and honeybees um, in, in the habitat that this species is in. They're also the most abundant native bee in that, that particular habitat level, mm-hmm. and um, maybe that might provide benefits in that way as well. It allows you to sort of dominate the habitats that you're in. Yeah. Interesting. And Who is, knows? is the expectation that they will become more and more larger colony based as time goes on as a result of some of these, you know, presumably some of these pressures that they're feeling? Yeah, that's that's always the question. We're always asking what are the steps through the evolutionary hierarchy? So how do you start from being solitary and move up until mm. you get to these massive colonies like honeybees? For this species I'm 
doubtful that they would do that because it seems to be what they've got going seems to be working for them. Some of them are solitary, some of them are social, and there seems to be a good balance there um, to function in the way that they need it to function. Mm. Look, it's it's very interesting stuff, Olivia. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. I think – you know, we see so much about the big colony B stuff. You know, that's the version that everyone sees, but we don't hear about this version as much, and especially a, a version where the bees are in transition in terms of the way they interact, which I think is is really fascinating. Be curious to find out down the track. Uh, you know, how those bees who are just helping out the uh, the one doing all the breeding get their their genes through, but maybe if they're all cousins. They're not so worried about it. It's hard to know how they would actually make that determination. But um, it's look, it's it's really interesting stuff. Thanks so much for chatting to us and, and good luck with the ongoing work. It is such an important area of study. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Folks, that was Dr. Olivia Davies from the College of Science and Engineering at Flinders University. Three, triple We've got a complex show today, zipping around, Zoom here, guests in the studio there, people in the studio. It's crazy. Anyway, musical uh, chairs, literally. Musical chairs, literally. Uh, now, we have two guests uh, now for you. We've got Dr. Susie Shee, who's online for us from the University of Melbourne. And uh, Susie, I think you still hold a University of Oxford appointment, or have you recently removed Yeah, I'm, I'm now visiting lecturer in at the University of Oxford um, after being there for yeah, about 15 years. Yeah, yeah. You've been, last time we spoke to you, you were, you were still there. So visiting lecturer, is that like I'm they let you come in every now and then? Yep, good. And yep. Uh, in the studio with us is Professor Nicole Bell, who is from the University of Melbourne School of Physics. Good morning, Nicole. Morning, Shane. It's great to have you in here. And I look, Nicole is a bit of a miracle, actually, because she was one of the students in the class I taught way back when and still did physics. Well, how, how did that happen? <laughs> well, it all, it all went well and I'm still here. Yeah, I didn't put you off. I mean, well, so many... well, that's passion and interest over, over. perhaps lecture quality. <laughs> the barriers you've had to overcome, Nicole. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the days. Um, it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. She's forgotten. But um, look, the reason I've got you two in is, um, well, Firstly, just so you know, Susie, we are going to talk a little bit about Nicole's work in a minute because we can't help but uh, chat about that a little bit. But, of course, there is this group of lectures that happens every year called the July Lectures in Physics, which have been around for, uh, uh, we're talking 40 years, Susie? It's the 55th year. 55 years? It's the 55th running of the July Lectures in Physics. Yep. Incredible, huh? Incredible. Now, tell us, because you're organising it, you're the sort of, I guess, convener of, of the program this yes. year. And I'm the curator of the, the curator, program now. The curator. Yep. Um, what, what is this all about? I mean, what, this, is, this is for the public. Yeah, so it's for the general public, but it's quite a unique series because it allows people to come into the University of Melbourne. And the idea is each year we have a theme um, and that we get lecturers mostly from the University of Melbourne, uh, but some outside ones as well, to really explore those themes in a way that uh, everyone can understand. But they're not easy themes, right? Mm. So, uh, you know, we explore all kinds of fundamental and applied topics in physics, and this year's theme is uh, our quantum world uh, and the idea that almost everything around us is somehow based in quantum mechanics. So we're exploring everything from the creation of the universe through quantum mechanics, which is Nicole's uh, area. I'm sure she can speak to that. Mm. Um, through to quantum computers. We're going to have a live demonstration of someone, uh, Professor Lloyd Hollenberg, uh, programming a real quantum computer in real time wow. in his lecture, which is really exciting. Uh, quantum chemistry. So the idea that uh, all the you know ideas behind chemistry actually fundamentally come from quantum physics. Um, and then also the ideas behind nuclear uh, fusion energy. So the, the hope for abundant energy in the future, you know, carbon, you know, low carbon energy uh, in, in the future may very well come from uh, nuclear fusion projects such as the ITER project, uh, the big international one. And that's all based in quantum mechanics as well. So uh, Professor David Jamison will explore that one. And the chemistry lecturer is uh, Professor Katia Pass, who's from uh, Monash and is actually a chemist, technically, not a physicist. Very cool. She's doing quantum chemistry. Work. Now, these are, these are, I remember back in the old days when I used to go to these, and they haven't, haven't been in a few years for, you know, obvious reasons for a few people, but uh, they were all, always hold, held in, and if my memory serves, the, the Herkes and Leiby theatres, which are the two um, prominent theatres in the School of Physics Annex. Where are they held now and how do people get yes, to go along? So- 
we have outgrown uh, we have outgrown the physics department. Um, so now we are in the largest theatre on the University of Melbourne campus, which is actually in the Melbourne School of Design building. That lovely, um, beautifully oh, architecture. The new architecture building. building. Yep. Yeah, in in the big basement theatre, there it, um, seats around five hundred people. So it's very exciting for me as a curator to inherit a series of lectures about physics on Friday evenings in July that attracts five hundred people. It's uh, it's incredible to me and very heartening that there is a demand. Uh, from people in Melbourne to come and learn more about physics, and this is their their opportunity. Mm. And where will people find information and tickets and so forth if they want to sign up? I mean, Nicole, so, we're going to talk to Nicole in a minute. She might just put everyone off these lectures completely. But let's assume that doesn't happen <laughs> and people want to come along. Um, where would they? People where would they to go? Come along. Yeah. So it's, it's every Friday evening in July, starting this Friday, the eighth of July. Yep. Um, if you look at the University of Melbourne events page or just Google July lectures in physics. 2022 you will find all the booking and registration information they start at 6 30 on a friday evening uh, but there are actually free drinks and canapes from 6 p.m so that's my tip to you is arrive a little bit early uh and the registration cost is is free so that's all included so it's going to be a really fun evening and you will have the opportunity as well to ask people like Nicole, um all the questions that you have wanted to know about quantum mechanics because yeah. it's such an important topic in our society and in our technology going forward yeah it's, a, it's cool stuff thank you Susie. now uh nicole i remember i'm not sure if you had this at same experience but when i was in year 10 science my science teacher gave me this book called mr tompkins in wonderland if i recall correctly um which was about a quantum world and some bugger in fourth year quantum theory gave me the same book and all of a sudden i had this nightmare um you know, it was this interesting story about someone who explored the quantum world and how different that was. I mean, can you give us an idea of what that looks like? I mean, what what's so different about the quantum world that we don't perceive normally day to day when we're sort of wandering around? I mean, what... I mean, the quantum is different to classical physics that we experience in our everyday lives because... Mm systems can be simultaneously in more than one state and they can right. be this superposition of, of, of two states and this is just not something that we have any intuition about. So it mm. seems weird to us. When you think about it for, for long enough and you know, for a physicist, it's <laughs> everything is quantum and we've, we stop thinking about how weird it is. But there is no analogue in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. And so it, it's hard to have an intuitive feel for how quantum mechanics works. Yeah, I suppose that, that classic, you know, Schrodinger's cat idea is the second you tell someone about that, the idea that can be alive and dead at the same time and everything in between. Exactly. People are like, what? You know, and it, and I think, I'm not sure, but if you if it ever makes sense to you, there's probably something wrong, right? I mean... Yeah, I think so. That's <laughs> <laughs> good to hear that from you. Now, now your talk is going to be on um, the quantum processes that helped create the matter in the universe. I suppose one of the things people don't normally think about is we've heard the terms matter and antimatter, but we predominantly have matter in our universe. Exactly. So so my lecture is about why the universe is the way it is and how quantum mechanics was responsible for that. Right. And why there is something in the universe instead of nothing, that is why this matter here at all, actually requires quantum mechanics. So exactly, mm. why didn't the universe have equal amounts of matter and antimatter that annihilated and went away long ago and left us with an empty universe, the fact that we've got something versus nothing needed quantum mechanics. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because normally when we think about that stuff, we think large scale, you know, immediately I start thinking, oh, yeah. well, general relativity, all the stuff, you know, Einstein stuff on large scale is where we, we think. But, but this is small scale. So we're talking about, is this like when the universe is very small or is it the components within the universe that are very small we have to deal with? So, so quantum mechanics makes a difference for the universe on all sorts of different scales. I mean, even just where the galaxies are located today, originally the structures in the universe were seeded by quantum fluctuations at the end of inflation, right? Right. So the, the structure on the really biggest scales, you can trace it all the way back to the beginning of the universe with teeny tiny quantum fluctuations in the density. But the the creation of matter or why, why there is matter, again, it's quantum mechanical. At the classical level, we think there are symmetries that say you can't take matter and turn it into antimatter. Right. We call okay. this barrier number conservation, but it's, it's just this law of nature, if you like, that says you can't take matter and turn it into antimatter. Okay. Yep. At the quantum mechanical level, those symmetries are broken. Right. And it's the breaking of those symmetries at the quantum mechanical level in the first few moments of the, you know, of the universe that allows us to have more matter than antimatter and 
be here today to talk about things. Right. And when you say, so here's where I, I, I get dragged in. When you say first few moments, whether, you know, we're, whether we've been around for 13 and a half billion years or something, what, what are we talking about in terms of the first few moments? How long? Or less than a minute, right? Less than a minute. Less than a minute, absolutely. Wow. And, and do we know anything about like the size or what the universe looked like at that point? How much do we know? Well, the, the observable universe was much smaller, much hotter. The particles were much more energetic. Mm. I mean, th- those are the things that we can say confidently. Right. And do we know what was there at that point? Because we, you know, we often hear, you know, where the, the stuff of stars, you know, like we've been created, heavier elements were created by exploding stars and, and et cetera, et cetera. But at the very early stages, was it just all protons and electrons? At the very early stages, it was quite simple. Physicists like reducing mm. things to systems that are simple. At the very early stages, there were no heavy elements. There was nothing complicated. It was, it was protons and neutrons and electrons and heavier copies of the electron and neutrinos and photons and a little bit of dark matter. But yep. that's probably it. Yeah. Now, in your lecture, um, so this is, this is coming Friday, um, so people will be able to come along. Is it going to be like, are people going to get to see stuff? Like, is it going to be the demo? Is there a demo that you can do in this space? It's very hard to do a demo to recreate yeah. the universe. So I'll have What's lots of pretty like? pictures, but I won't be making baby universes <laughs> on the stage. Damn. Damn, I was hoping you were going to create a small black hole in the physics, uh, in the physics lecture environment. I think I've seen that movie. I'm not sure it ends well. Yeah. And um, in terms of like, like, this must be one of those scenarios where to, to get this across to people, like to get them thinking, you know, in a, in a quantum realm in a way, it's going to be hard. How do you do that? Like, how do you, like, as you said, the intuition's not there. So how do you get them across the line into understanding the, the quantum space? I think there's some 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 ideas that, that that you can that you can build up and show how the quantum mechanics works. There's all sorts of weird and wonderful quantum mechanics that goes on in the early universe, tunneling from one vacuum state to another vacuum state. Right. I mean, again, we don't see quantum tunneling in the real world, but we we can talk about it in a way I think people can understand. So this is the idea: like I could literally throw my pen, and there is a finite chance it will go through that glass window across the other side of me. It will tunnel through on a particle level, though. On a party, a very, very tiny chance. Yeah. You, you might have to wait, keep doing this until beyond the end yeah. of the universe yeah. 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 It could <laughs> before happen. it's likely to happen. Yeah. But it could happen. But it could. It, it could happen. <laughs> yeah. I think this is, uh, this is interesting stuff. But when we're talking about individual particles and things of that nature, then, then the chances become finite, right? They become such that it could actually, these sorts of things become real. And there are conditions in the early universe where some really important quantum tunneling processes have high probability of being right. achieved. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, um, I think uh, it's fair to say your work day to day. You're you're a theoretician, and so you you compute some of this stuff in a sense. I mean, what does that look like? How do you? I mean, I have this image of you know just a back of an envelope and you're scribbling some notes. But you know that that was kind of back when. So we, you know, scientists are doing back of the envelope calculations all the time. Yeah. But typically, we have to move on and do more sophisticated calculations, typically on a computer. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of the sorts of things you're calculating in your actual work, so forgetting the, the lecture for a moment, I mean, what sort of things are you calculating at the moment? What sort of things are you trying to nail down? So I'm working a lot on what is the dark matter that makes up most of the matter in the universe yep. and how we would go and find it. Um, so I'm looking for ways that dark matter would interact in detectors on Earth, and I'm thinking about ways that you could probe the interactions of dark matter with astrophysics, like mm. the accumulation of dark matter in neutron stars and what that would do, yep. um, and how to combine clues about what we know about dark matter to put together some sort of consistent picture. Yeah, because at the moment, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems as though all of like the many experiments going around the, around the world to try and nail down dark matter are one by one saying, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And we're kind of I guess we're crossing things off. Is that is that a, a good sort of analysis of what's happening? We're crossing off things to some extent, but, you know, those extents, experiments will get more and more sensitive as time goes on. Yep. And it's only recently they've started to get big enough and sensitive enough that we would have a hope of detecting something. So it's, you know, these experiments take decades in the planning and the execution and maybe some of the initial ones that were done decades ago were never going to find something yeah. but they're now getting good enough that you know the, the chances of finding something are, are pretty good pretty good now before i let you go i just want to ask you what, and this is a question i think people have probably heard me ask before on the show if they've listened for long enough but why do we need dark matter like what why do we have to find it like what does it do 
what does it do for us in the on universe? a day-to-day well, in, life? No, I mean, I'm not going to put in my phone, but, but, you know, like, why is it so important that we nail down this, you know, what, what evidence is there out there that it exists? Why are we chasing it so strongly at the moment? The evidence that it exists is, is sort of overwhelming. We can look at the universe on small scales, like the scale of a galaxy, or mm-hmm. bigger scales like clusters of galaxies, or even bigger scales like the universe as a whole. And we consistently find the need for dark matter. We, we know it's got to be there because of the gravitational influence it exerts. Right. Um, so we're pretty sure about its existence. But there's more dark stuff than there is visible stuff in the Mm, universe, five times as much. So to claim we even understand our own universe without understanding the dark stuff is is really – we don't understand the universe until we know what that is, where it came from, how how it works. So we've got to stop focusing on the bright, shiny things. Because I think you know part of the, um, the the most amazing thing, and I haven't heard a lot of people say it this way, but with the the gravity gravity waves sort of detection work that's been done over the last few years, and you know being able to detect those waves, we've we've invented in a sense a new version of astronomy that can you know look right. at it's look like at, looking at the universe yeah. with a new wavelength. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's, there's radio waves and yep. there's gamma rays and you know there's gravitational waves. Yeah. So Which every doesn't time depend on the brightness. a new type of yeah. astronomy, if you like, opens up, we find something that we didn't expect yeah. and we learn something new. Yeah, and I think that's, that's phenomenal. I mean, and I, I haven't heard that a lot, but to me that's like, you know, we started off in the optical, big telescopes, optical telescopes, then as you say, radio waves, and, and we started looking at things like pulsars, and, you know, Jocelyn Bell Burnell's been on the show before talking about the pulsar discovery a couple of times, and then all of a sudden now there's this new, new version. It's not one you can have in your, you know, the amateur astronomy world, right? be detecting gravity waves anytime soon i suspect but you know it is this whole new area of astronomy that's new so it's it's just fascinating well nicole hopefully uh you inspire people to come along to the lecture on friday um susie uh, i'm sure the the you know this is one of four um so there are four for people to go to yep. and um people can google july lectures in physics at university of melbourne and they will find those thanks so much for chatting to us susie we're going to get you on at some stage to talk about your new book Definitely, definitely. Uh, but first, these four July lectures in physics are going to be really exciting. So I'm excited to, to see them. And, and if there's more of what Nicole was just talking about in her lecture, then I, it's going to be absolutely amazing. So thanks for having us on. Sounds great. Thanks, Susie. Where are you at the moment? You're in Thailand or Malaysia or somewhere? I'm in Sydney. Oh, you're in Sydney? In Sydney. <laughs> Sydney. You were exotic. You were, you were somewhere <laughs> exotic a few weeks back, I remember. All right. Thanks so much, Susie. Good to talk to you. Folks, that was Dr. Susie Shee. Thanks, Shane. And in the studio, Professor Nicole Bell. Thanks so much, Nicole. Good to see you again after 20 years. I think we haven't encountered each other in a little while, but uh, lovely to see you again. Thanks for being on Triple R. Great to be here. Thanks, Shane. Three. Triple R. Listening to Einstein and Gogo, time now to hand over to Dr. Ray uh, to tell us about uh, nanoparticles. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Shane. We'll get to nanoparticles there. Um, I, uh, I had the joy of actually going to a scientific conference earlier this week in Brisbane. On a plane. Uh, on, on a plane. I went on a plane, went to the conference. You know, it's warmer there in the winter, although it does still get cool at night. And uh, it was the <laughs> International Colloids and Surface Science Symposium. So it was an international meeting. There were... Folks from Europe, a few from the States, um, uh, from the Americas as well. <clears throat> and um, so it was neat to, to, to go there. And colloids in interfacial science is really about the behavior of uh, small particles. And when I say small, I mean particles in the micron to 100 nanometer range typically. So particles that if you put them in solution they don't settle out. So if you mix sand and water, the sand will actually eventually settle out to the bottom. Mm-hmm. But if you have really, really finely ground sand and you mix it with water, you notice the water stays cloudy for a long time. Mm. And that's because the particles are so small, they don't settle from gravity. And so when you start to do that, there's a lot of different things that they end up working with and, and, and being useful for in applications. So I was sitting through this meeting and lately I have to admit, I've cared more about nanoparticle measurement than I had in the past for reasons out of my research. So I was kind of sitting and probably more sensitive to that topic as I was going through. And I thought, where do nanoparticles fit in our everyday lives and why are they important? <clears throat> and um, there was a um, someone from a paint company giving a lecture as well. And I thought, oh, paint's always a great example of nanoparticles because uh, paints are made up of pigment particles that make walls white or, or blue or purple or mauve. Um, 
uh, or, or mauve or, or whatever chartreuse, <laughs> whatever color you want to go with. But uh, uh, <laughs> all the pebbles, uh, all, all the pebbles, pebbles. Um, nightshade. No, uh, but it, 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 the other thing that makes up a, a paint that makes it a film that actually covers the wall is it's actually got a bunch of particles in it that are around two to 300 nanometers. Now, as a reference frame, your hair might be 10 microns wide, which is 10,000 nanometers. So if you have 100, 100 nanometer particles, that about, that's about as wide as a hair. So it's a very, it's smaller than we can see. You know, it's like one ten thousandth of your hair. That's kind of a weird reference frame. But a virus is maybe 50 to 200 nanometers in size. Uh, a red blood vessel is 5,000 nanometers. So paint is made up of all these small little particles. And it's actually why paint works. Because you put it together, it goes on a wall... All these particles actually form what's called a film, and the film in the film, the particles actually get squeezed together and they meld together. They actually do meld together because they're polymer particles. And I was just thinking, yeah, there are a lot of things where we do need nanoparticles to actually make things work. And so I was looking at the scientific literature this week, and that was a much more sensitive thought in my mind. And I went, and, and what I came across were two different examples. One I'll talk about a little bit, and the other one I'll just kind of raise as an advertisement where. If we didn't understand nanoparticles and know how to use them, we couldn't do things that are important to us. Now, the first one, you can argue whether or not is it incredibly important to us, but it'll probably happen. And that's yet another type of um, LED display or plasma LCD hmm. display. And uh, this was uh, researchers uh, out of um, Korea had actually noticed that perovskites, which are a very popular material and photovoltaics there a, a proskite is has a metal basically crystal that has a very high efficiency so when light hits it it can generate electricity and they've actually been shown that they work as well as commercial silicon grade solar cells but they're easier to process so that's why it's an attractive option well as it turns out so in photovoltaics you shine light you get electricity what they also found recent what they've also noticed with perovskite materials if you apply electricity, you get light mm. that's effectively photoluminescent. And so that makes them a potential for a display. Now, while everybody uh, and, their, and their brother and their sister and their cousin is looking on perovskites with solar cells is because they're very easy to process and make. So people went, oh, well, gosh, if solar cells are easy to make, maybe it's easy to make perovskite-based light yeah. and photoluminescence yeah. displays. Uh, and, and so they started <laughs> doing it, and they kind of had used the solar cell approach. And... Um, to make a perovskite, it's actually a crystal, but to make it, they, they basically lay down coatings or layers of paint and then get them to react into the crystal and form the crystal. And that sounds great for solar cells. But for photoluminescent, for, for a display, it actually doesn't work over large areas. And to make a display work, you need to be able to make um, the material flat and defect-free over a large area. And so what they went was, well, this isn't going to work, and we, we can't seem to make large areas. And they went, wait, what if we make them nanoparticles first and then put the nanoparticle coating down? So they made perovskite nanocrystals. And as it turns out, when you make a perovskite nanocrystal, it's even better in its behavior and its quantum efficiency than if you're making a hunk of perovskite, so larger particles. And, 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 and they, there were some details about how they used um, the what are called ligands, little pieces of uh, basically wax they put on the end of them to stabilize them. And it's funny, I read that and I went, oh wait, I just sat through a, a talk on simulating ligands and how great they are making nanoparticles behave better, particularly for electrical properties. I went, oh, that's kind of cool. Not that it's going to excite people. But they said, wait, what if we tried to make it out of particles? So they made small little tiny crystals that are about 10 nanometers in size, and then they were able to basically paint them on a surface. Um, the painting step is a little fancier than what we do at home. And, well, it sort of is. They didn't use an airbrush. They used basically a, a putty knife and scraped it on. Right. I mean, very carefully and in a way that looks expensive. But, but <laughs> basically, they used a putty knife and scraped it on. And it made fantastic films that were as efficient as small films, but over very large areas. And I went, oh, well, you know, the world desperately needs another display technology because our, our quantum LEDs and the TV I have isn't bright enough. And, you know, and, and, and they're, yeah. you know it's going to need to be an entire wall size eventually. But, but I did go, you know, it is something where they had to make small nanoparticles to get that to work. And I went, that's kind of an interesting idea that the, why nanoparticles matter is they end up being able to do things we can't. I mean, they're in sunscreen. 
when we say a mineral-based sunscreen, those are larger nanoparticles, but they're designed to interact with light because they have to be the same size as light. Hmm. So there's this effective size matters. And I thought, well, I was actually reading through, and there was another fantastic review of an example where nanoparticles have shaped our society in a very important way, and I can do this in about a minute. And it's vaccines, that what we don't remember or always recognize about the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine is why they were possible is because they use nanoparticle carriers to deliver the mRNA. So we're talking about things that are 50 to 100 nanometers, so actually just a little bit smaller than the particles in paint. Now, those particles are engineered in a vaccine a little bit more complicated. They have lipids. They have polyethylene glycol. They have peg polymers. They have cholesterol. But they've actually engineered a carrier that wasn't going to be possible without using nanoparticles. And, and, and why I, I point it out and frame it this way is there's this interdisciplinary approach of bringing together chemistry, physics, and maths, and then whatever your application field is, could be coatings for paint, could be electronics, could be biology for vaccines, where you have to bring together a lot of different scientists and expertise. And this knowledge about nanoparticles has really shaken out of 40 or 50 years of fundamental scientific research over chemistry, physics, uh, linking it with biology and, and a, a lot of different other places in, in interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary fields. And so I was just kind of like, wow, that's, that's, you know, how do you link to society to go, no, wait, all this research was really good. If we couldn't make nanoparticles, in the end, we couldn't make things that we weren't even thinking about 20 years ago. Mm. It's interesting stuff. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, we're out of time, but I always remember is it's only, I think, within the last 10 years that the Nobel Prize for blue emitting diodes um, was given out. Um, before that, you know, it was really hard to make light sources that were blue. And we, we take them for granted now. They're all in our televisions and our devices and so forth. But, like, this is really recent. You know, this stuff yep. has been really hard until just recently. And so, you know, you, you if you look at your old VCRs and some of these things, you know, some of them, they, they – a lot of them didn't have good blue diets. They just weren't available. So it's interesting stuff. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Thanks. Good stuff. Dr. Linden, good to have you in the studio. Nice to see you both. Nice to see you. In a moment, folks, we're going to hand over to the team from Edit. I can see, uh, yes, Cam is, uh, well, he looks vaguely ready, but that's just Cam's look. He is always ready on the inside, and uh, I think he's going to be talking about honey today. I think he has a guest on about honey. So it is part of the ongoing um, bee extravaganza we've had today on the morning of Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening. We'll chat to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.